It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So when I first saw this headline, I thought, wow, it's just a bit of colorful hyperbole as we see in the media. You know, Jeff Bezos, the blast off. Everybody knows he's got this rocket company, Blue Origin. They're going to start charging people a whole lot of money to fly into space. And I guess they're getting ready to launch. But you click on the story and no, the founder and CEO, soon to give up that title, of Amazon, the owner of the Washington Post, the founder of Blue Origin, Arjun is going into outer space himself in that very first flight, which is going to be around July 20th. On July 20th. I will take that journey with my brother, Bezos says. The greatest adventure with my best friend. Since I was five years old, I've dreamed of traveling to space. Now, uh, he said this on Instagram. Now, look, it's Bezos' money. He could certainly decide that he wants to be a pioneer in this sort of thing. I don't know if it was me. I'd let a few other people go first, make sure the technology worked, make sure I'm coming back. And then when like interest was starting to wane, then I would announce that I'm going. And then you get a whole second wave of publicity. But it's his company, it's his money, it's his rockets, right? So more power to him. Uh, certainly wish him a safe trip. Um, and, you know, it is, on the one hand, the whole thing's 11 minutes. So I guess you, you, know, you achieve zero gravity and you're in outer space, but not like halfway to the moon. On the other hand, what an amazing experience for any human being. So you can see Bezos wanting to do it. But anyway, I think this will get lots and lots and lots of coverage and could possibly make the front page of the Washington Post. Hey, this is a heartbreaking story, at least until you dig into it. And anybody who's ever competed uh, any athletics at any level had to feel uh, for John Rahm. Uh, he's a big uh, golfer. A professional golfer, originally from Spain. Been living in Arizona, I believe. He's the number three golfer in the world, so forgive my ignorance, golfing fans. I should know exactly who John Rahm is. And over the weekend, he had to withdraw from something called the Memorial Tournament. So here's the scene. He's, it's the third round. He's leading by six strokes. I mean, he's got this thing tied up. He's going to win this major championship. And suddenly, somebody comes out in a mask and talks to him. Nobody's quite sure on CBS what's going on. And he was informed that he had tested positive for COVID-19 and he had to leave. He had to withdraw from the tournament that he was on the verge of winning. He was actually in tears getting the news. People could see this uh, play out on live television. The PGA Tour announced this minutes later saying he had been testing negative every day after coming in close contact with the person who tested positive for COVID. Uh, His test on Friday after the second round, however, came back positive while he was on the course. And a second test of the original sample found the same positive result. An incredibly unfortunate situation, says the tour. So, I mean, here, you know, you work your whole career. I guess the guy's 26. You're about to win this tournament. I mean, part of me is saying, okay, you don't want him to endanger anybody else, but other than potentially his caddy, you know, why don't you let him finish? You know, and then you bar him until the end of the... period where you're considered infected. But here's the reason, after looking into this a little bit more, why I I have to temper my sympathy with amazement at an incredibly dumb move by Rahm. And that is, I mean, here's a guy, he travels for a living, right? You golf and you go to one tournament, you go to one city after another, you're getting on planes, you're getting on trains, all that stuff. But he hadn't been vaccinated. He only got his first shot after coming into close contact with the infected person this week. 
So, you know, uh, in his age group, I mean, he could have gotten this any time in recent months. And you know what he lost by not doing that, by not getting fully vaccinated? He lost $1.6 million. That would have been the prize money. So if you ever needed like a poster boy for why you should get vaccinated, you know, don't endanger anybody else, don't endanger yourself, and don't endanger your livelihood, John Rahm is now it. Again, I feel sympathy because he was so close, but what a bonehead move for somebody who's obviously going to have a lot of exposure to other golfers, to the public, uh, the mere fact that you're traveling all the time. Get vaccinated, and this wouldn't have happened, and right now he'd be the champ. All right, moving right along here. Uh, Kamala Harris, her uh, foreign trip started last night. There was a little bit of a minor, uh, I guess, scare, you would call it, on Air Force Two, where after about a half hour after the plane took off, there was a mechanical problem discovered, came back to Andrews. They took about a 90-minute delay, and everybody got on a, the backup plane. So I'm glad that that worked out. Anyway, it didn't stop her uh, from going to Guatemala. It's a two-day visit. Mexico is next. So Politico has a piece... Uh, kind of a scene setter about what's going on. And the headline is about modest goals for Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, and here we get the spin, which is, you know, you know that politicians are very practiced and every White House knows how to do this. You can either ramp up expectations or you can tamp them down. Well, the Biden administration is trying to manage expectations for Kamala Harris's first international trip as VP. Uh, the goal for her visit isn't to roll out a massive plan to solve the problems driving thousands to flee the region, according to administration officials, people close to the White House and experts, but simply to show the U.S. cares and isn't just looking for quick fixes. But it calls, political calls this, an early test of her ability to be a leader on the world stage. Now, let me just digress and say this. Of course, they've got to tamp down expectations because this is a massive problem at the border. No one trip is going to solve it. Uh, And... You know, it's certainly not in Kamala Harris's interest to have everybody thinking she's going to come back with some great achievement here. Uh, And by the way, most of the time when vice presidents take these kinds of trips, I'm talking about going back to even when Biden was vice president, when Mike Pence was vice president, uh, you name it, you know, Al Gore, Dan Quayle, um, any of the others. They get modest coverage and reporters usually travel along, particularly on an international trip. But, you know, it's not expected you know, you're not the president, you're not expected to produce any great breakthrough. If there was a great breakthrough to be had, it would be POTUS who would be taking the trip. Uh, And he's going to Europe, by the way, Biden is this week, uh, and making the announcement. So more from Politico. Harris needs to prove she's the right person to lead the Biden administration's efforts to stem the migration of thousands of Central Americans and Mexicans, something previous administrations, both DNR, have failed to do. In the long term, she can handle a complex, she has to show she can handle a complex foreign policy issue. That's a must for her future political ambitions. And bing, ding, 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 that's the reason this is getting so much attention. Not just that the border is a hot button issue, not just that this is her first foreign trip as vice president, but because um, she is a first herself. This is obviously not breaking news. First black vice president, first vice president of Asian American descent, first female vice president. Have I checked all the boxes? Okay, thanks. Um, but also because she is expected to run for president either in 2024 if Biden decides not to seek a second term or in 2028. So she doesn't want expectations to get out of control. So uh, she's going to meet not just with the leaders of the countries, but with community leaders and entrepreneurs. There'll be roundtables with women and labor leaders. 
Administration officials, Harris aides, and experts say this is an opportunity to demonstrate in a high-profile way that she is genuinely committed to engaging community and business leaders in the two countries. Um, so the piece goes on. Uh, it's a chance for the administration to reset what her role on immigration policy actually is. Because I don't really know what her role actually is. It's, she's been very low profile in taking this up. And I think the reason is she doesn't want to own this volatile issue in which it's very hard for this administration or any administration, but particularly with the surge that followed the election of Joe Biden for reasons of his uh, more, uh, let's just say, relaxed approach than Donald Trump. She doesn't want that to be an albatross around her neck. Um, so even her aides are admitting that the rollout, admitting privately, which means that somebody told us Politico, the rollout of her border role could have been smoother. Um, and aides say they aren't focused on correcting the record for Republicans because the trip likely won't change the GOP tactics. Here's the inevitable blind quote from a senior administration official. They're deliberately not getting it. It's not hard to understand, but they want to try to tie her up in the border czar position for their own purposes. Message, she's not the border czar. She's going to represent the president and don't uh, get your hopes up. So in yesterday's New York Times, Frank Bruni, longtime liberal columnist, who, by the way, is giving up that column in a couple of weeks and he's going to go teach somewhere, uh, had uh, a piece titled Kamala Harris Can't Win. So I thought, well, this is interesting. Because uh, Bruni, you know, to me, his flaws at Columbus, he's obviously a smart guy, is that, you know, he's just kind of a knee-jerk liberal and every single issue he takes the knee-jerk liberal position. And therefore, I find him very predictable. Uh, so I thought, oh, it means he's going to criticize Kamala Harris and maybe he's figuring, well, you know, I'm giving up this column, I can stake out a few independent positions and so forth. But I was wrong. He starts out by talking about um, all the other media outlets that have been critical of Kamala Harris. In this sense, this is similar to a piece in The Atlantic, which he actually cites a couple of weeks ago that I talked to you about on the podcast. So you see, I'm, I'm way out ahead of these things. You see the trends before they actually form. Okay, so uh, in National Review, says Frank Bruni, Charles Cook recently wrote a takedown under the headline that Democrats have a Kamala Harris problem. New York Post editorial board panned her announcement, excuse me, her commencement address at the Naval Academy, calling it naval gazing. Get it? N-A-V-A-L. That's pretty clever. Um, the Atlantic piece I mentioned, she retreats behind talking points and platitudes in public. Okay. So the piece ends up being about how unfair fair the press is, uh, Bruni says. So what exactly is she supposed to do? She confronts the confines within which a vice president has to operate on top of similar confines in which black people and women in positions of power are often expected to operate. It's a Goldilocks, double or even triple whammy. Too strong a voice, and you're stepping outside of your place. Too soft a voice, and you're timidly phasing to rise to the occasion. Harris can't win. Okay, so I actually kind of agree with that analysis that she's in a box and it's very hard to get out. But the Harris can't win of the headline is actually clickbait, because he's not saying she can't win, let's say, the Democratic nomination next time it's open. He's saying she can't win in the sense of, you know, what are you going to do? She just can't win. If she does this, it's no good. If she does that, it's no good. Um, and she faces the taller hurdles and extra pushbacks that minorities typically do. Um, and hasn't always been the most dexterous political operator. Okay, so there actually was a little bit of criticism embedded in there. Um, and I think we'll be hearing a lot in the next couple of days about Vice President Harris and her trip and what she is or is not able to accomplish. Hey, I was just on uh, Fox News this morning and talking about Joe Manchin. I have been stunned uh, at how much bad press Joe Manchin is getting from the mainstream media. 
Why? Because Joe Manchin is one of two senators, Kristen Sinema is the other, who is refusing to go along with everything that President Biden wants. Look, he has to survive politically as a more of a center-left figure than a flaming, you know, out-and-out left-wing guy in the red state of West Virginia. But I also have watched his interviews. He was on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday yesterday, and Chris asked him, are you being naive in expecting there to be some level of Republican cooperation? And Manchin said, no, I just think we have to keep trying, my Republican friends, and so forth and so on. So he's really under the gun. It happened after the January 6th commission. When that went down, he thought he could, they could work out a compromise. They did not. It happens now because he had a piece in a paper in West Virginia and repeated this on the air on two Sunday shows, one of them on Fox, that he will not vote for the big, sweeping voting rights bill that President Biden and top Democrats are behind. And, of course, without uh, Manchin voting for it, it can't pass. You know, there's 50 Democrats in the Senate. Any one of them defects, and if all the Republicans are against, it can't pass. And then you get to the question of the filibuster. Manchin actually complained the other day. Reporters ask me the same question every day. Will you support getting rid of the filibuster? And his answer is no. He thinks it's essential uh, to the proper functioning of the Senate. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. I mean, obviously, the filibuster became most famous uh, during the Civil Rights era when Southern segregationists uh, used it to stop any progress on civil rights legislation. But right now, you know, if you're the party out of power, you love the filibuster because it means nothing can pass the Senate without getting to 60 votes unless you use that reconciliation process. Uh, when Democrats were in the minority, they used the, the filibuster. or the I should say the threat of a filibuster because in the classic filibuster, you know, you see it in the movies, you got to, you know, it's kind of like when Ted Cruz read from Green Eggs and Ham, you got to stand on your feet, talk for 20 hours, and finally everybody collapses and they move on. So right now, what both parties do is they just allow the other to say, well, we're going to filibuster, and then they move on. So I've noticed, you know, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, Joy Reid on MSNBC have gone after Manchin. Uh, today, the liberal Huff Post has this banner headline. This is about voting rights. And the headline is, blowback at Manchin, colon, would preserve Jim Crow to please GOP. And that preserve Jim Crow is kind of a quote from a Democratic congressman. But, of course, the idea is that he doesn't care about voting rights, doesn't care about black people. What it leaves out or minimizes, and I see this all too often in the media, is that Joe Manchin supports a different bill, a narrower bill called the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act that deals mainly with obstacles to voting rights. And, you know, this other bill, the For the People Bill, whatever it's called, has a lot of other stuff in it that is kind of like a Democratic wish list. Um, anyway, I mean, they're not going to get that bill if Manchin refuses to vote for it and if he won't abolish um, the filibuster. But it just really is striking how he's kind of become the new enemy of the left and even some of the framing in the mainstream media, like Joe Manchin's a bad guy. When he basically says what Joe Biden said during the campaign, he wants to work with the other party. Now, if Manchin continues to get kicked in the teeth, uh, by Republicans who talk again, but just keep delaying and delaying and delaying, as we are seeing on infrastructure. That's one area where he really wants to get a bipartisan deal done. By the way, Biden meeting again with Republicans. But it's not going to happen, in my view. It'd be great if it did. They are so far apart, both on the financing. I talk about this every day till I'm blue in the face. Um, they talk about the financing. The Republicans don't want to raise taxes on corporations, raise the corporate tax rate to help pay for, for these, this $2 trillion bill. You know, Biden came down to a trillion. The Republicans are about $250 billion in, in new spending. And they're going to start marking up this bill in the House as if it's going to go through on a one-party vote, meaning reconciliation. 
Now, is that an effort to bluff the Republicans into making more concessions? Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll pass. But my experience in these things is when you're this far apart, in the end, it doesn't pass. All right. Uh, Washington Post has an interesting piece about Donald Trump giving a speech at the uh, convention, Republican convention in North Carolina on Saturday night. Okay, on the air, I use some shorthand. I'm getting beaten up by people uh, on, online. I said, I meant to say, none of the major cable news networks carried the speech live. Of course, CNN didn't take it. Of course, MSNBC didn't take it. Fox News didn't take it either. Stuck with regular programming. But in not using that shorthand, I gave the impression that nobody carried it, and Newsmax and OAN both carried the speech live. So I was wrong about that the way it came out. My intention was, because those, look, I'm not here to beat up on Newsmax or OAN. They have a following, but they have small audiences. They're not in the same league in terms of uh, viewership, anywhere near in the same league as the big three cable news networks. And that was my point. Anyway, at this speech, uh, here's the Washington Post write-up. And it's, the, the point of this story is to show you how Republicans have a dilemma, which, of course, you know if you follow politics at all, if you even listen to me at all. Uh, so, and we talked about uh, some of this and Trump continuing to tell people this hasn't exactly been denied by Donald Trump. And I did this on Media Buzz. Hope you had a chance to see it. Segments are online. You can follow, you can pick them up on my uh, Twitter page or my Facebook page. Um, telling people that, you know, he'll be reinstated. You know, there's no direct quote from Donald Trump, but this is what he's told certain other people. Reinstated by this summer. Anyway, at this uh, convention speech, um, he talked about his two impeachments. He talked about the rigged election, the stolen election. He talked about the coronavirus pandemic as a way of criticizing Biden. There's a lot of criticism of Biden. I looked at the transcript. You mentioned Biden like 50 times. And that's fine. But, you know, it's only, what, uh, June after Biden was sworn in January 20th. The usual routine is for a defeated president or a former or defeated presidential candidate to give his successor a little bit more breathing room before doing this, you know, all-out partisan attack. But Donald Trump is not your typical politician. That is not exactly a shock. He wants attention. He also wants to influence the debate. He also wants to raise money for Republicans in 2022. And he's keeping open the possibility of running in 2024. Some Republicans argue uh, that the party needs to move past Trump to woo disaffected suburban voters and women, says the Post, uh, with a return to a focus on policy. As evidence, they maintain that Trump contributed to Georgia Republicans losing both Senate seats in that, those January runoffs because he would not budge from his false claims about the election being rigged. But uh, the conundrum for the GOP, while Trump himself remains overwhelmingly popular among the party's faithful, he potentially poses a problem for the GOP in terms of winning in the midterms. This is the post-analysis. Um, so, in Georgia, but, you know, the, the problem may be seen th- through the eyes of journalists. When you get down to the state and local level, it's a very different picture. For example, and this is in the story, in Georgia, people at the state convention there booed the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, because he didn't overturn the results of the election because Biden won that state. They censured Brad Raffensperger. You know that name. He was the secretary of state who publicly challenged Donald Trump. Trump made this call that was recorded. And, you know, if you can just find your way to 11,000 votes and Raffensperger wouldn't do it, he did his job. 
Same thing, uh, a crowd in North Carolina loved when he insulted people uh, involved in the pandemic and boasted he did a great job. He went after Anthony Fauci, especially after the release of those emails. I played this clip on the air uh, on my show. He's not a great doctor, but a hell of a promoter. He likes television more than any politician in this room, Trump said. Um, there are a few signs. So, you know, the media trying to like, oh, Trump, he's really toxic. He's really going to hurt the GOP. And then they can't... Prove it. For example, uh, anybody who challenges Trump has a way of losing. For example, Liz Cheney kicked out of her House leadership post after voting for his conviction in the impeachment in, uh, was it late January or early February? I've lost track of so much has been going on. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right. Speaking of Trump, Washington Post did this story a couple weeks ago. New York Times has its own version today. Trump on social media, and let me just stop by saying, okay, it's not exactly um, shocking news, stunning news, eye-popping news, forehead-slapping news, that because Donald Trump was banned from Twitter, from Instagram, and from Facebook, that Facebook penalty now extending for at least two years, and then he has to come back and beg Mark Zuckerberg to let him back on, that his social media engagement goes way down. But there are some interesting tidbits in this Times analysis uh, that we're missing from some of the earlier studies. So the Times looks at, uh, what, about 1,600 social media posts from September 1st to January 8th. That's the day he got banned, you know, two days after the Capitol riot. And then tracked uh, his social media uh, engagement since then, January 9th to May 5th was the period when they, oh, that was the day when the Facebook Oversight Board said, nah, you're not coming back, uh, but faulted the company. Okay, so before the ban, the social media post with the median engagement, kind of like the average, you know, you learned this in school, median, same number higher, same number lower, generated 272,000 likes and shares. After the ban, by the Silicon Valley giants, that dropped to a median of 36,000 likes and shares. Okay, uh, I'm not surprised, are you? But this is fascinating. 11 of Trump's 89 statements after the ban attracted as many likes or shares as the median post before the ban, if not more. So the, 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 the news here is it depends on what Donald Trump is saying. A lot of what he says is repetitive. When he's the president of the United States, he could make news, he could change one word, insult somebody, beat up on the press, and he'd get a lot of engagement. Um, and so, let's look at where it changes. On October 8th, Trump tweeted that Joe Biden, this is during the election, and Kamala Harris lied constantly. That post was liked and shared 501,000 times on Facebook and Twitter. Now, on March 21st, this is as a former president and after the ban, he criticized the Biden administration's handling of the border crisis, saying his administration had handed over the most secure border in history. Our country is being destroyed, Trump said. That was liked and shared more than 661,000 times. So despite the fact that he personally is not on any of these leading social media sites, he actually exceeded with certain statements. You know, if it's interesting enough, it's provocative enough, if it touches some kind of nerve, you get all these other people, Republicans, conservatives, media people, especially on the right, um, liking and sharing it, and he gets back to, you know, even higher than his previous numbers. Okay, so here's another example. February 16th, Trump goes after Mitch McConnell because McConnell won't, has been refu has refused to back 
uh, Trump's, you know, attempts to say that the election was stolen. You know, McConnell didn't vote for conviction on impeachment, but then they gave that floor speech saying Trump had incited the riot and so forth. Okay, so that one uh, got a lot of shares uh, on both the right and the left. So in total, it was liked and shared more than 345,000 times on Facebook and Twitter. Some of it came from left-wing sites. Some of it came from right-wing sites. Um, So overall, uh, now if you just drill down on the claims of widespread election fraud, processes rigged, stolen, extensive voter fraud, before the ban, just on this one subject, Trump's posts on that subject, 22 million likes and shares. After the ban, 1.3 million likes and shares across Twitter and Facebook. Now again, a major part of this is he's not on. He can't blast it out. He can't retweet. He can't do any of the things that you can do when you have an account on these giant platforms. But on the other hand, maybe, you know, I'm not talking here about the most faithful supporters of the former president, but maybe people kind of feel like they've heard this over and over and over again. They can see the election's not being overturned. He's not going to be reinstated. This, This clown audit that's going on in Arizona because uh, Senate Republicans in Arizona keep pushing it, where it's just been a complete mess. There hasn't been the proper security. It's just turned into uh, an embarrassment, frankly. And even the state Republican Party thinks it's an embarrassment, but that hasn't stopped uh, the Republican members of the state Senate. Okay, I want to get to one or two other things. Uh, The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, it's a pretty tough piece in the New York Times about how liberal it's got. Now, remember, the ACLU was founded on the principle of free speech. In fact, the ACLU was always controversial because it would defend the right of Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. In other words, it would say that the First Amendment and and free speech have no meaning unless you defend the most unpopular causes. Not that the ACL lawyers personally believed in Nazism or communism or, or hate speech, but, you know, depending on the situation, most of the time the ACLU came down on we should not suppress speech and demonstrating, protesting is seen as a form of speech. But now it's changing. And I do credit the Times for being willing to take this on. Uh, now the ACLU is becoming more liberal and advocating for a growing number of progressive causes, including voting rights, reparations, transgender rights, defunding the police. And many of the original crusading lawyers who built the modern ACLU are upset about this. Ira Glasser, he was the director forever, as I recall. And he says, look, there are a lot of organizations fighting eloquently for racial justice and immigrant rights. But there's only one ACLU that is a content-neutral defender of free speech. I fear we're in danger of losing that. And the story makes clear the ACLU has already lost that. It was founded a century ago. Uh, This is interesting, just in terms of the history of it defending conscientious objectors to World War I and Americans accused of communist sympathies after the Russian Revolution. Neither of those, as you can imagine, uh, being very popular at the time. It's defended the free speech rights of labor organizers, civil rights activists, Nation of Islam, Ku Klux Klan. I mean, you can't get more controversial than the horrendous, horrible, racist Ku Klux Klan, but the ACLU says, hey, even the KKK gets free speech. But now... After Trump was elected, what happened is so much money poured into the ACLU. Its budget, which had been about $100 million, more, uh, nearly tripled to more than $300 million. But it has the same number of lawyers, four, 
specializing in free speech as 10 years ago. The ACLU, this is, not, this is a news story, folks. In the New York Times, the ACLU became an embodiment of anti-Trump resistance. More than one million in donations within 24 hours after the election. Uh, and the salaries reflect that. The current director makes $650,000. Some of the top lawyers make $400,000. And the annual report in 2017 came out with resist superimposed on an image of the Statue of Liberty. So the ACLU really changing its focus. And you know what? Uh, Ira Glasser is right. There's a lot of great groups out there that carry the progressive banner. The ACLU was supposed to be about free speech, but now it seems to be part of the resistance. And one other little note uh, before I go. Uh, Naomi Wolf, according to the BBC, has been banned. She's an American author. You may know her name. She wrote a book decades ago that was a popular bestseller called The Beauty Myth. And then she became an info advisor to Al Gorn. She advised him to wear more earth tones. And she was controversial then. I interviewed her once. Very smart woman. But she's kind of gone in a conspiratorial direction. She's now been suspended from Twitter for spreading vaccine misinformation. Uh, so what has she, has she said? She claimed that um, vaccines were a software platform that can receive uploads. In other words, you get the shot to protect yourself and people around you from COVID-19. Somehow you could receive uploads of information. She compared Anthony Fauci uh, to Satan. Oh, that's pretty temperate, right? She got 140,000 followers, by the way. She tweeted that the urine and feces of people who had gotten the coronavirus vaccine needed to be separated from general sewage supplies while tests were done to measure the impact of this waste on non-vaccinated people through drinking water. Okay, this is really far out stuff. It's, you know, if you're opposed to vaccinations, fine, state your case, but, you know, drinking water and separated and Satan and all of that. Uh, she was also duped at one point into tweeting a made-up quote on an image of an American porn star dressed up as a doctor. Uh, a book she wrote in 2019 by Naomi, Naomi Wolf was canceled after accuracy concerns were raised. And one last thing. Um, the vaccination rate has really dropped. and This is really troubling. I mean, it's great that it's gotten as far as it can. But right now, the U.S. is averaging fewer than one million shots a day, a decline of more than two-thirds from the peak. Uh, 12 states have seen vaccinations fall between uh, below 15 daily shots per 100,000 residents. Many of those states are in the South or the Midwest. And the problem is, experts say, I know this seems far-fetched now, but then in the fall, colder weather, if the rates, vaccination rates don't get higher, that the virus could come surging back in those areas. So what's happened is, quite frankly, and the Biden administration is doing all kinds of things, and free Uber rides and free beer and free fireworks and everything else. Most of the people who want this vaccine have already gotten it. So this is the so-called last mile, getting the people who just don't see the need for it, like the golfer. Or they say, you know what? I mean, the pandemic seems to be over. People are going out without masks. I don't really need to get it now. It's not that they don't believe in vaccines. They just kind of think it's unnecessary. That could come by, back to bite them and, by extension, all of us. So I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we find ways to get more shots into people's arms. Hey, if I didn't say it at the top, I hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had a chance to watch Media Buzz. Always appreciate your listening. Apple iTunes or Google Podcasts or on your Amazon device are all good ways to get uh, what I have to say here. And with that, I'll just sign off. See you tomorrow with more Buzz. Media. 
the Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day, featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.